Welcome to TanaStudy.com. This is Naima Novetsky. This week, we'll be concluding our study of Sefer Vayikra with Parashat Bechukotai. A Sefer Vayikra deals almost exclusively with Halakha, containing numerous commandments and legal discussions. The book appropriately ends with a list of blessings for observance and curses for disobedience. These are the subjects of Parak Chavav of Chapter 26, the first chapter of our parasha, and these will be the focus of much of our study this week. The chapter opens with the various rewards for observance, discussing these in verses 3 through 13. It then moves into the curses for disobedience, which takes the reader from verses 14 all the way through verse 41. The section of curses is significantly longer than the blessings. In fact, it's almost three times as long, making many question, why are the two sections so uneven? Does the Torah think that negative reinforcement is more effective than positive reinforcement? Should not the amount of blessings and curses be somewhat equal? As we look into the two units, we'll see that despite the difference in length of the two sections, there's actually much correspondence between the two lists, and perhaps our initial impression that there are many more curses might simply be a misperception. Nonetheless, the extra press space devoted to the curses will still have to be explained. So let's start by delving into the section of blessings. Verse 3 opens the unit. Pasud Gimel. Im b'chukotai t'lechu, bet mitzvotai t'shmeru, v'asitem otam. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them. Though this verse seems to be a fairly straightforward opening, setting the condition for reception of reward, that we'll be blessed if we follow Hashem's laws and keeps His commandments, some have read a bit more deeply into it. The Sifra questions, what is the necessity for both phrases, im b'chukotai t'lecho, and ve'en mitzvotai t'shmeru? Is not following Hashem's statutes included in observing Hashem's mitzvot? The Midrash answers that the phrase refer not only to observance of mitzvot, but also to the studying of Torah. Rav Hoffman explains that to merit rewards, one needs to not only observe Hashem's commandments, but also to recognize the Torah as the foundation of all of Judaism. As such, one needs to study and truly understand it so that one may live by it. Verses 4 and 5 move into blessings of rain and produce. Pasuk Dalet Benatati kishmechem bi'itam, benatnaha aret yivula, I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall reach to the vintage, and the vintage shall reach to the sowing time, and you shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. Hashem promises that rain will come in its proper time so that both land and tree will yield its fruit. In fact, He promises that there will be so much produce that the threshing season will take so long that it will run into the vintage season when grapes are harvested. The grape harvest in turn will be so abundant that it will last until it is sowing season. The verses emphasize that not only will there be ample rain, but that it will come in its proper time. This, of course, is a huge part of the blessing because rain in the wrong season is not only unhelpful, but can actually ruin one's crops. The Gemara in Masechah Tanit adds another aspect to the blessing, suggesting that the words in its proper time 
mean that it will rain on Shabbat evenings. In other words, it will rain when people tend not to be up and about, but rather resting in their homes, so that the lands will get ample water without even bothering the people with the nuisance of getting wet. The Gra, the Gaon of Vilna, finds yet another hidden blessing in our verse, noting the language of Gishmechem, your rain. Hashem does not just say that he will give us rain, but he will give us your rain. The Gra explains that we will have rain while surrounding countries might not. As such, people from the surrounding countries will come to buy crops in Israel, further enriching the country. Our two verses end with the phrase, Vishavtem levetach ba'artachem, and you shall sit securely in your land. This at first glance does not appear to fit with the other agricultural blessings of the verses. Ibn Ezra explains that the verse is actually not referring to security from enemies, but to the fact that one will not need to fear famine, and as such, one will not have to wander in search of food, but can rather sit securely in one spot without worry. It's possible that this explanation is at least in part influenced by Ibn Ezra's own personal life story. In his poverty, he was forced to wander from one place to another, and so he can appreciate a blessing which provides security and allows one to stay put in one spot. Verse 6 continues with blessings for internal peace. Pasuk Vav V'natati shalom ba'aretz u'shchavtem ve'in macharid v'shpati chaya ra'a min ha'aretz v'charev lo ta'avor ba'artzachem I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove evil animals out of the land neither shall the sword go through your land. The opening phrase of our verse v'natati shalom ba'aretz has been understood in different ways. According to some, it refers to peace between neighbors. Hashem is promising that the people of Am Yisrael won't fight among themselves. Others suggest that it's a general statement which is explained by the rest of the verse. There will be peace from wild animals and from sword. Picking up on the phrase, and sword won't pass through your land, Rav Yosef Bechor maintains that the verse is referring not to the sword of enemy soldiers who are coming to attack, but to those who are simply passing through. Meaning, Hashem promises that even foreign nations who are not coming to fight with Israel won't even pass through the land en route to fight with someone else. Since Eretz Israel is at a crossroads, it often found itself as a passing ground for other armies. If, for example, Egypt was going to fight Assyria or going to fight Babylonia, its army might pass through Eretz Israel. Since this often meant that the land would be plundered as the foreign soldiers pass through, Hashem promises that the land will be totally at peace and not even witness a sword aimed at others. Verses 7 and 8 move from internal peace to external peace. Pasuk Zayin Uredavtem et oivechem v'naflu lifnechem lecharev You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall, shall fall before you by the sword. Hashem promises that the nation will be able to defeat their enemies, and that even just a few soldiers will be able to pursue and defeat a huge army. Five will be able to chase a hundred, and a hundred to chase ten thousand. Verses 9 and 10 continue. 
I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will establish my covenant with you. You shall eat old store kept long, and you shall move out of the old because of the new. In these verses, Hashem promises both fruit of the womb and fruit of the land. The first phrase of the verse, is somewhat ambiguous though. What does Hashem mean, and I will turn to you? Rav Hoffman suggests that this is a promise of Hashkachat Pratit, of individual divine providence. Hashem will turn to provide for the people's needs by himself and not by a messenger. The verse contains one other puzzling phrase, What kind of blessing is it to say that you will eat old produce? Rabag suggests that, there is, that this refers to the sabbatical year, when the people will be able to subsist on the wheat from the year before. Hashem is reiterating that that blessing will come to fruition. Rashi more simply suggests that this is a blessing that the old grains will stay fresh and be as good to eat as the new. Hashem further promises, Since there will be so much new grain, the people will have to empty out some of the storehouses of old grain in order to fill them with the new. The blessings of the next two verses are more spiritual in nature. Pasuk Yir'alef, verse 11. I will set my dwelling place among you, and my soul won't abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you will be my people. Hashem here promises to reside among the nations and to walk to and from among them. The phrase, is somewhat troubling. This is somewhat of a backhanded blessing, that Hashem won't abhor us. Why would we think that he would? You don't normally bless someone that so-and-so won't detest you or that so-and-so won't despise you. Rather, you'd say, may you be blessed that so-and-so respect and admire you. Ibn Ezra explains that Hashem is saying that he will dwell among us, and unlike humans who sometimes tire of dwelling in one place, Hashem promises, I won't tire of you, but I will stay with you always. Rav Hoffman instead explains that when Hashem resides among the nation, the expected standard of behavior rises. Hashem promises, though, that if we decide to walk in His ways, He will watch over us and keep us from sins which might otherwise cause the Shekhinah to depart. The unit ends with verse 13. Ani Hashem Elokichem Avadim. I am Hashem your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you shall not be their slaves, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you go upright. So to summarize the various blessings that we've just looked at, as Rav David Hoffman points out, the ten verses of blessings can basically be divided into five types of rewards, agricultural promises, internal peace, victory over external enemies, fruitfulness, and the promise that Hashem's presence will reside among the nation. So how do these compare to the curses of our chapter? Perhaps not surprisingly, there's actually a significant amount of correspondence between the two lists. Each category of blessing has its match within the section of curses, which similarly mention curses affecting agriculture, internal and external peace, children, and our relationship to Hashem. Significantly, the curses add a category not found in the blessings the travails to befall the nation in exile. To highlight the similarity between the blessings and curses, 
The verses often use similar language to express how each is but the inverse of the other. So, for example, while verse 4 promises that the land will bear its fruit, verse 20 states that if we don't keep Hashem's commandments and if we are disobedient, the land and trees will not bear fruit. Verse 6 promises I will remove wild animals from the land, while verse 22 curses, I will send among you wild animals. Similarly, we are told that if we observe Torah, then we will be able to defeat our enemies. If not, though, if not, we will be defeated by our enemies, we will be forced to run away. In place of a blessing for fruitfulness of both the land and womb, in the curses section we are told that famine will force mothers to eat their children. Finally, instead of the promise that Hashem will set his dwelling place among us, in the curses section we are told that Hashem will destroy our temples. Despite all this overlap, though, the list of curses extends way beyond the list of blessings, with, as we said, almost three times as many verses devoted to them. And so we repeat the question we asked earlier. How is one to understand this phenomenon? Why should there be more curses than blessings? The Midrash Tanchuma already asks our questions and answers in the way of Drash. Amar Rabbi Shmuel, Mishim abit bahen, habrachot yitirot alaklalot. Rav Shmuel says, if you look closely, you will see that it is the blessings which are more numerous than the curses. Ketzad, how so? Babrachot patach ba'alef, im bechugotai tilecho, b'siyem b'taf, bo'olechatchem komemiyut. The verses of blessings start with an aleph, with the words im bechugotai tilecho, and they end with a taf, with the words bo'olechatchem komemiyut, which ends with a taf. Shehabrachot ba'ot alehen, me'alef ba'ataf. This teaches that the blessings will include all, from aleph to taf, from first to last. In contrast, Baklalot patach bevav, ve'imlo tishmu, v'siyem behei, b'yad Moshe, bin vav behei, ain klum. The curses, on the other hand, open with a vav, and they end with the letter hey. Between hey and vav, there is nothing, and so it is the blessings which are more numerous than the curses. Unfortunately, though, from a simple reading of the verses, between hey and vav, there is not nothing, but rather quite a lot of curses about 25 verses worth. And so, Ibnezer gives a more pshat-oriented answer, an answer more in line with the simple sense of the verses. He suggests that really, as we said, the two lists cover the same basic categories. So Hashem is not saying that we'll be cursed more than we'll be blessed. The list of curses is only longer because while the blessings are described only in general terms, the curses include many details. This, he says, is necessary so as to instill fear in the nation. Fear of punishment might be a bigger incentive to proper behavior than promise of reward. Rav Naftali Hurtvizel offers a different explanation, which stems from the unique structure of the curses section. To understand his explanation, we need to note that the section of curses is actually broken into five distinct units. Like the section of blessings, the curses open with a general statement, if you don't heed my laws. 
However, unlike the section of rewards, it does not just continue them to list all of the curses, but rather every few verses it adds another warning. And if you still do not listen, so for example, after listing several curses regarding disease and sword in verses fourteen through seventeen, verse eighteen reads, "If you, in spite of these things, will not listen to me, then I will chastise you seven times more for your sin." The next few verses add a few more curses, but then in verse twenty-one we read again, "If you walk contrary to me, in tachui mi bekeri, and won't listen to me, then I will bring seven times more plagues on you according to your sin." This pattern repeats after every few curses. The refrain repeats with another warning that more will follow if the people continue in their evil ways. Ravizel suggests that these various refrains betray Hashem's mercy on the nation. Had he wanted, he could have unleashed all of his wrath and fury at once, sending forth curse after curse. But Hashem does not do that. He tells us that he will send forth a punishment, but then give us a chance to repent. Only if we do not heed his warnings. And obstinately cling to our evil ways, will he send the next batch of punishments? So yes, there might be more punishments than blessings, but they are split up and do not come all at once. And if we repent, some might not come at all. According to Rabbi Zelvin, the refrains we just read should be understood as giving forth a message of mercy, as they prove that Hashem will give us continuous chances to repent and numerous days of punishment. But a close look at them simultaneously makes one wonder if these refrains do not also point to Hashem's harsh side. There are two points which repeat throughout these refrains: the concept that the people or Hashem, or often both, have acted bikkeri, and that as, and that as a result, Hashem will then pay the nation back sevenfold for their ways. The phrase "vahalachtem imi bikkeri" is difficult to translate. What does it mean that either we or God treat the other in such a manner? Perhaps more troubling, though, is the idea that Hashem says that He will pay us back sevenfold. Is Hashem suggesting that we'll be punished more than we deserve, not just measure for measure, but seven times the amount that our deeds warrant? How do we under- how are we to understand this? Emir Hashem will discuss both of these issues in our next class. But already from the outset, it's important to note that there are two ways of looking at a refrain: either as a sign of mercy, like Rav Zel suggests, or perhaps as a sign of harsh justice. There's one more aspect of the structure of the curses section which is worth noting, and which might further support Rabbi Zel's idea that even within the curses section, Hashem's mercy peeps out. As we noted earlier, the curses section opens with the statement, "The imlotish meuli belota as to it kolam itzvotayla." If you don't listen to me, basically the flip side of the blessings opening verse, "Im bechokotay telecho bet mitzvotay tishmuru vasitemotam." While the unit of blessings then immediately begins to list the blessings, the unit of curses includes one more introductory remark: "The imbechukotai timasu the mishpatai tigal nafshachem." And if you shall reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances, apparently disobedience alone is not enough to warrant curses. Not only will one have to be lax and observant in order to merit a punishment, but one will need to reject and abhor them. When non-observance is accompanied by an attitude of degradation and mockery, that is when Hashem will truly get angry, and that is what will truly merit His wrath. Interestingly, the two verbs to reject and abhor, timasu and tigal, come up once again at the end of the curses section, sandwiching the unit. 
In the conclusion, though, they play a very different role. Hashem says, At the very end of the unit of curses, Hashem adds a message of consolation. Even when we are punished with exile, Hashem promises that He will nonetheless not reject or abhor us to totally destroy us. Though we rejected Him, though we abhorred His statutes, Hashem can never do the same to us. The unit closes by explaining why. I am Hashem, their God. I will remember the covenant that I took them out of Egypt. This conclusion echoes the conclusion to the unit of blessings, which similarly stated, Ultimately, Hashem wants to bless, not to curse us, because He is our God who took us out of Egypt. I want to close with one last question, which relates to the entire unit of blessings and curses. The overwhelming majority of both the blessings and curses that we looked at are physical in nature and all relate to this world rather than the next. How come our chapter never mentions the rewards or punishments of the world to come? Are those not the ultimate reward? And moreover, how come these are never mentioned anywhere else in Torah either? Ibnezer responds that the nature that the nature of the world sorry, Ibnezer responds that the nature of the world to come is something that only few can understand. As the Torah was not just given to the elite and wise, but to the entire Jewish people, Hashem did not include discussion of such a lofty concept that would be incomprehensible to so many. Instead, Hashem included the mundane blessings of this world, which all can understand and appreciate. One might question if Ibn Ezra's assumption is correct. Does Hashem really omit things because not all can handle them or understand their true meaning? And is Ibn Ezra really correct that had the Torah alluded to Olam Haba to the world to come, it would not have been understood? Granted that we can't appreciate what a next world will be like, but the concept that there is one is not necessarily something that the average person can't grasp. In fact, it's a concept shared by most of the world's religions. Rambam, the Rambam instead suggests that the purpose of the list of blessings and curses in our chapter is not really to explain what one's ultimate reward or punishment will be at all. That ultimate reward or punishment will indeed be in the world to come. The physical rewards of this world described in our Parsha have a different goal. They're not an end to themselves, but rather a means to a different end, the ability to do more mitzvot. When surrounded by pestilence, famine, or war, it's very difficult to reach the heights of spirituality and to observe mitzvot properly. Hashem tells us that if we nonetheless try to do mitzvot, the reward will be an environment in which it is easy to observe Hashem's laws and to grow in our relationship to Hashem. Conversely, he tells us, if you turn your back on God, He will make it more difficult for you to observe. Tchar mitzvah mitzvah, avira avira. The reward for a mitzvah is a mitzvah. And the reward for a transgression is another transgression. According to the Rambam, then, the Torah never meant to speak of the ultimate reward or the ultimate punishment, only about the path to get there. Others question one of the major assumptions lying behind our question. The idea that since the spiritual benefits of the next world are far greater and more miraculous than those of this world, the physical rewards of this world should not be as eagerly anticipated 
or provide nearly the same incentive for observance, and as such, the Torah's emphasis should not be upon them, but on the next world's reward. Rabbi Judah Levi, in his philosophical work, The Kuzari, questions this whole notion. He compares the promises for observance listed in Torah with those professed by other faiths, writing, Although the promises of other faiths are more, luxuri uh, more luxurious and sensuous than those of Judaism, they are all realized only after death, while nothing during this life points to them. We don't find written in the Bible, if you keep this law, I will bring you after death into beautiful gardens and great pleasures. This, he says, is one of the advantages of Judaism. Am Israel, in contrast to other nations, already gets to enjoy some of their rewards in this life. Already in this world, Hashem says, I will walk among you and be, you, and be for you a God. This, he says, is an amazing thing. Members of other faiths might boast of their expectations after death, but we already enjoy the fulfillment of these in this life. And if this is what we have in this world, one can only imagine what we will get in the next one. Ramban similarly questions one of the assumptions of our question, pointing out that though many assume that the spiritual rewards of Olam Haba are far more miraculous than the blessings described in our Parsha, the opposite, he tells us, is really true. Really, it is natural that after death, a soul should enter the next world and cling to God and spirituality. It makes sense that it should return to God who created it. That's the natural expectation. So much so, he says, that in fact, when a soul is undeserving, it must be actively cut off from the world to come. Because if it's not actively cut off, the soul will naturally move there. So in contrast to what is normally assumed, Ramban points out that it is specifically the rewards mentioned in our Parsha, which are the miraculous one. Rain is not naturally contingent on observance or disobedience. War and disease don't naturally strike only when one sins. It is thus these rewards which provide the best proof of Hashem's providence and allow one to recognize the hand of Hashem in this world. As such, it's specifically these which are highlighted. So to end our class with just one more bracha, may we all merit to observe Hashem's commandments and be worthy of both the physical rewards of this world and the spiritual ones of the next. Amir Hashem, next class, will begin to look at the curses inside, focusing on the refrain we mentioned earlier and what it means that Hashem will punish us sevenfold.